Well, good evening, everyone. I invite you to open a Bible, please, to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I hope you've had a good uh, day and enjoyed the weather. We had a lovely uh, time round at the Bartlett's this afternoon. A good number of us, uh, some young, some not so young, with uh, the students for a barbecue, and we had a great time of fellowship. Uh, continue to pray for the the student team, as there's a number of changes in the leadership. Uh, and it was lovely. David and I, David Armstrong and I, got a beautiful plaque each with a picture of the, uh, of the mugs of the student team, their faces. Very beautiful and handsome. So we will stick that up on our wall, and we will remember that uh, with great gratitude. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the fellowship that we indeed do have together as a church. We thank you, Lord, for each individual who contributes to this fellowship. And we thank you, Father, for each group within the church which provides fellowship and encouragement in our faith. And Lord, we bless you too for these times of meeting together, all together as a fellowship. And we pray that at the end of this Sunday, at the end of this beautiful day, that we would be blessed, Lord, as we would open your word. So speak to us, instruct us, and apply your word to our hearts, we would ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Yet another controversial week in politics. Resignation after resignation. Headline after headline. No doubt the most extraordinary was when last Tuesday the Speaker of the House of Commons announced his resignation. The first time since 1695 that a leader in his position has been forced out. To say there is a crisis of confidence in political leadership at this time would be an understatement. And they're not out of the woods yet. As we move into yet another week of revelations, yet more troubling questions are continuing to arise. Who will resign next? Who should resign? Will disciplinary action be taken against the now former MSPs? MPs, who will replace the departing politicians? Who will the next Speaker of the House be? And what will the new MPs be paid? What will their expenses budget be? And can confidence in political leadership ever be restored? We leave it to the politicians and the papers to answer these questions. You'll be glad to know. But I want tonight to discuss with you a series of similar and related questions. Because as we come to look back in time some 2,000 years, as we come to look back to the first century, we discover that some similar questions were no doubt being asked in the early church. In Ephesus, in the church where Timothy pastored, There was also a crisis of confidence in leadership. Not in the political leadership, 
but in the spiritual leadership of God's people. Recently, some leaders in this church had gone off the rails morally and doctrinally. And naturally, there were many questions that therefore were being asked and needed to be answered. Should these elders resign? If not voluntarily, should they be forced to resign? And how do you discipline an elder in a church anyway? What about the appointment of new leaders? How do you ensure that the people you choose don't fall into the same pits? In the case of pastors that you appoint, how much money should they be paid? And what should their expenses be? How do you restore confidence in a church after a leadership scandal among the pastors and the elders of the church? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses these questions very clearly, very straightforwardly in the letter that we've been studying over recent months. It's uh, 1 Timothy. And as part of this wider study, building a healthy church, we see that the health of the church very much hinges on the leaders of the church. And so we're going to consider what I've called leading questions. As Paul gives answers to questions that we might have, never mind in the first century, that we might have about leadership in the church. So let's read the passage then. It's uh, 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 25, beginning at verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water. And use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Amen. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Well, this is a very instructive portion of Scripture. And it's very obvious, isn't it, that the focus of this section is church leadership. Throughout these verses, what Paul takes aim at, if you like, with his bow and arrow, the target is always the topic of leadership, church leadership. However, rather like an arrow with three feathers on the end, 
Paul divides this up into three facets. He considers three aspects of church leadership. Firstly, he discusses the idea of honoring church leaders. Secondly, he considers the important matter of disciplining church leaders. And then thirdly, he looks at the thorny issue of choosing, appointing, selecting church leaders. Honoring, disciplining, choosing. Now, need I say, these were and are fairly controversial topics, all three, but they are also important topics, and they're addressed by God's Word, and so we look at them together with the help of God's Spirit. We begin with honoring church leaders. Perhaps the greatest surprise in this passage, I think, is that given the crisis in leadership in Ephesus, which there undoubtedly was, that nonetheless Paul should begin in his talking about eldership in a positive way. You could have forgiven Paul for being overly negative and initially negative. After all, there were some leading lights in this congregation who were teaching false doctrine, chapter 1, verse 3. Moreover, not all that long ago, Paul had visited this church, and he had actually turfed two men out of the fellowship. You see this in chapter 1, verse 20, and many people believe they were also teachers, maybe elders, in the church. Furthermore, when you consider Paul's need, the need that he feels in chapter 3 to lay out so extensively the character qualifications for eldership, it seems to be the case implied that there were some bad characters, either in the eldership currently or who had recently been elders. And so in this light, is it not surprising that Paul should begin nonetheless, in a positive vein about the leaders of the church. Paul, you see, has a high and lofty view of church leadership. He begins by stressing the honor that is due to the elder in particular. He did the same back in chapter 3. In verse 1, what he highlighted initially was that eldership is a noble task even if there were some who had been ignoble, even if there were some who had acted dishonorably. This had not caused Paul to write off eldership in its totality. When done properly, church eldership is noble. When done well, church leadership is honorable. Yet Paul insists that it must be done well if it is to be worthy of honor. Notice in, in verse 17, Paul mentions two aspects of the elder's task that he is to perform well. Firstly, the elder, he says, directs the affairs of the church. I should say, the elders together direct the affairs of the church. You might say they manage or they, they govern the church. That's what Paul's saying. Now, that is not necessarily all that elders do. You need to read the whole of the New Testament to build up a composite picture of the many facets of the elders' task. 
But one sizable aspect of it nonetheless is that there is this management function. As Paul puts it, the elders direct the affairs of the fellowship. Now, now I know that in our modern context, that is not something many people like to hear. It's not something we're too comfortable with. It sounds, for some people, far too authoritarian in our democratic day and age to talk about some in a church who direct the affairs of the church. Another problem some others have is that this sounds too businesslike. They say the church is not a business. The church isn't like any other human institution. It has to be run on spiritual principles, and there's a great truth in that. The church is not merely a matter of strategizing and organizing, of flowcharts and vision statements. It's also a matter of prayer and the Word and the Spirit. Nonetheless, though, I think we need to be careful not to go to extremes. Because Paul says that eldership is about management, too. You give me the church with no leadership body or with a weak leadership body, and I'll give you a church that's in a bit of a mess. It's the same with any ministry in the church, isn't it? When we know that the leadership are leaving or departing, there is an anxiety, isn't there, among those in the group. Why? Because we know that things have a tendency to disintegrate, to get disorganized and confused when there is no leadership. And in the case of the whole church, Paul says, the group that is the the management group, so to speak, is the eldership. Just as the home needs to be managed, Paul uses the same word, interestingly, direct, in chapter 3, where he says the elder needs to manage the home, he needs to direct the affairs of the home. Well, just as your home needs to be managed, so also the family of the church needs to be directed. Now, there is a skill to it. Paul says that they must do it well. It's possible, of course, to do this task badly. It's possible, of course, to neglect to do this at all, even though you are in a position of leadership. You're not fulfilling the function of leadership. It's a little bit of a question to you, not only if you're an elder, but if you're a leader in any uh, capacity in this church. It maybe seems obvious to ask, but if you are a leader, are you leading? Are you directing affairs? Or are the circumstances or, or, or the, the group beneath you always having to prod and direct you? The leader's job is to lead. And if you are under leadership, can I ask you this? Do you receive gladly the leadership of the leaders? I'm speaking in a general sense. Is that your inclination? There's no point in having leaders in a church if we never let them lead. It's one of the most crippling problems in the egalitarian West, isn't it? Everybody wants to be a leader, and nobody wants to follow anybody else. Well, if that's what happens, we're going to be muddling around in confusion. Paul says that leaders are meant to lead. He says this is the first thing that all elders do. But notice what he adds. He also says that there are some elders who are involved in a second work, especially. It's the work of preaching and teaching. It's very clear here that, that, that this is not each and every single elder who is doing this, at least not to the same degree. 
Paul adds the word, especially, verse 17, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So not every elder gives themselves so fully to this particular task, but some elders do. They give themselves to preaching and to teaching. Now, there's been an enormous debate over church history and across church denominations about how we're to interpret these distinct groups as Paul describes them. For example, is Paul here speaking of a two-tier elders court? Some people think that, that Paul is speaking on the one hand about what you might call ruling elders. They manage the church, they disorganize the church. And then over here, you have another separate group who are teaching elders. They don't manage, they just get up in the pulpit and they teach. Now, in my own estimation, and it's just my own humble estimation, I can't go into all the reasons why, but I believe there's a distinction, but I don't believe there's a separation between these groups. For example, it would be hard to imagine that those who labor in preaching and teaching in the church, something which is highly directive after all, would be totally uninvolved in then managing the wider affairs of the church. I mean, even here in this letter, Timothy, who is a preacher and a teacher, is receiving instructions from Paul about how to manage the church. On the other hand, conversely, surely elders who rule could never be totally separated from those who teach. Because Paul, back in chapter 3, Verse 2 said that every elder must be able to teach. Perhaps we would therefore be better to say that within the one eldership, there will be a range of gifts being exercised. And there will be particular emphasis given by differently gifted individuals to different tasks. Some have especially strong gifts perhaps in teaching. So that's what they major on. Others perhaps are especially gifted in the managing and the direction of the church. So this is what elders do. They direct the affairs of the church, and some of them labor in preaching and teaching. And when that happens, where that happens, when it happens well, not poorly or shoddily, how should the church respond? Well, Paul sums it up with this peculiar little phrase. He says, there should be double honor. You see that in verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well, and especially those who preach and teach, are worthy of double honor. What in the world does Paul mean by double honor? Well, let me first of all say what I don't think it means. I don't think it means what the Good News Bible translates it as, double pay. Now, it would be tempting as one involved in pastoral ministry, believe me, to interpret it as double pay. I don't think it is, and the church treasure is breathing a little more easily since I've said that. I think we need to actually go back to the mainstream interpretation. It goes all the way back to one of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, who first, I think, interpreted this to mean that it involves two things, two different things. Number one, remuneration, and number two, respect. The double, therefore, signifies that it is not only cash, money, 
but it is also commendation and respect that is rendered. Again, note to the hardworking elder, and especially to those who preach and teach. John Stott summarizes it like this. Conscientious elders should receive both respect and remuneration, both honor and honorarium. Now, I guess the danger in any church situation is that we do either or, or, and not both and. Or maybe we do neither at all that well. So you can think of the church on one corner of the, of the road, and it pays the pastor pretty well. He says that's a great thing, and it is. But then you discover that this church actually shows their pastor scant respect. Because they pay him, they expect him to be at their beck and call and do their bidding. You see, in that case, there is remuneration, but there's not respect. There's single honor, but there's not double honor. But then across the street, there's another church, and this church is a bit of a contrast. The the congregation is so grateful to the pastor. They love him to bits. Anytime you speak to him, they're going on about their wonderful pastor. They really appreciate him, except when it comes to paying him. They pay him poorly, and they joke every now and again that he needs no earthly reward because his reward is in heaven. You see, that's respect without remuneration. That's the opposite, isn't it? That's single honor. That's not double honor. I think that's what Paul's saying here. There needs to be the respect, and there needs to be the remuneration. Now, on this latter front, on the money side, remuneration, Paul goes on to say that that this, this idea of paying the pastor, which might seem to some a fairly odious thing, is in fact a scripturally mandated thing. I don't know why Paul stresses this. Was there some in the church maybe who believed that Timothy, say, shouldn't have been paid? We don't know. But Paul reminds them that Scripture mandates this practice. He uses two examples. The first is from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. The second is from Luke's Gospel in our New Testament. One interesting thing in passing is that Paul calls both of these, Luke's Gospel as well as Deuteronomy, Scripture. He says, Scripture says... Speaking of Luke's gospel, isn't that tremendous? Commendation of Luke's gospel, even in Paul's day. Going back to Deuteronomy, the the first example relates to the ox and the grain. You see, the Old Testament law stipulated in Deuteronomy 25 that when the ox was treading out the grain, it should not be muzzled. You should not keep the ox from eating from what it was treading. The ox should be allowed to eat within the very context of the labor it performed. And Paul asks the question, should pastors, therefore, not also eat from their labor? Is the pastor less than an ox? Don't answer that question. You know, it's a greater to the lesser kind of comparison. Is his job less significant than treading out the grain. The ox eats from its labor. Why should the pastor not eat from his? And then Paul gives a second example. This time, he's not quoting from Moses, but he's quoting from Jesus. So he's got two heavyweights here, Moses and Jesus. And Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 7, that the worker deserves his wages. Jesus said... That if someone puts in a day's labor, whatever he's doing, if he's a hard tradesman, 
He deserves to be paid for the day's labor. And if an elder is working day and daily, if he's laboring with all of his time, particularly in preaching the word, Paul says, doesn't he deserve to be paid his wages? Well, Paul's answer to that is obvious, isn't it? Now, there may be occasional circumstances where the pastor chooses to forgo pay. And there were a number of occasions in the New Testament, you remember, where Paul refused wages. It was typically because people thought he was in it for the money. So he said, that's fine. I'll go and make tents. I'll make my work on the side, my money, and I'll preach the word for free. But Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, as he does here, that this is not the normative practice and that he would be entitled, indeed, to ask for a wage. There are, of course, other situations where churches cannot afford to pay the pastor. Paul's not addressing that situation here. Now, I'm about to leave this point, but uh, some of you are sitting and you're wondering one question. You're, You're asking yourself, what should a pastor be paid? You've kind of skirted around this issue. Paul does not say, so I don't feel inclined to say. But I do leave you to think this through, because I think probably Paul left this for churches to make an honorable decision with this. He, he left us to make our own minds up in this. But here's something that struck me this week. Whatever wage we pay a pastor, we must recognize that Paul calls it honor. It may not be double honor in terms of a double salary, but he does call it honor. So I would just simply throw that out as a suggestion. If you're involved in the money in paying pastors here or in another church, simply ask yourself that question. What is an honorable salary? And what might be dishonorable? Now, Paul moves on to a second controversial topic. They're not getting any easier. From honoring church leaders, he moves on to disciplining church leaders. Now, again, we've explained in a number of sermons and texts something of the the background to, to why this would have been an important issue. Paul wasn't merely happening to be speaking about church discipline among leaders. There was a situation in this church that had to be cleared up. Some in the church in Ephesus were were perhaps even calling for discipline of particular elders. They were maybe bringing accusations against elders and saying, Timothy, why are these guys still in office? But notice again that Paul is not gung-ho in his approach. He says, Timothy, in the case of disciplining an elder, tread carefully. Do not start firing leaders willy-nilly. The accusation of an elder, firstly, must involve two or three witnesses. This is verse 19. This was a provision. Again, Paul is appealing to the Old Testament that we see in the Old Testament law. Jesus similarly said that in the matter of church discipline with any member of the church, that it would need to be established by two or three witnesses, the accusation. Now, I think it's pretty obvious why that's important, isn't it? whether it's for church leaders or for any other member of the congregation, two or three individuals. It is obviously to prevent a person with a misguided or with a malicious intent from simply making up an accusation against a fellow member. If the accusation is pie in the sky, at the very least, this person would have to find another fruitcake 
who would also come forward and make the similar stupid accusation. And what Paul is saying here is that what is to be applied to the rank and file of the church is not least to be applied to the elders as well. Paul isn't calling for extra protection for elders. He's just saying they should have at least as much as anyone else has. They should have two or three witnesses as a minimum before any charge is accused. In fact, he says in verse 19, do not even entertain an accusation unless it comes from two or three people for the protection of elders. Now, certainly elders are not without sin, and they will be the first to tell you. Pastors are not without sin. I will be the first to tell you that. But it is indeed the case that they are the easiest targets for a smear campaign. They are typically the most visible and therefore vulnerable people in the church. I was interested as I was reading various commentaries this week, how many of the pastors writing the commentaries could give specific examples of where they had been accused by some person or another. For example, R. Kent Hughes, who uh, wrote the excellent uh, commentary on 1 Timothy that he has, he speaks of a time in his first pastorate where a woman with mental health problems accused him. She'd recently been released from a secure unit. She began attending the church, and she soon started to spread outlandish rumors about him, about the pastor. She claimed that R. Kent Hughes was about to leave his wife for her. And, and while it was totally untrue, and against everything that the church had known of his character, he said the hurtful thing was that a few folk in the church actually entertained the possibility. Now, that would not have happened if this simple guideline was followed. Not just one individual, but two or three people. Pastors are not above the law, but they should be treated with the same kind of principles as anybody else. Now, sadly, tragically, sometimes they do sin, and they sin badly. We all know that. And so let's say that a number of witnesses do come forward. Let's say that a grievous sin is clearly established. And let's say that the elder, verse 20, continues to sin. That's actually the tense here. The NIV obscures it a little bit here. It's present continuous tense. The elder is continuing to sin. They've not just sinned in the past, but they are sinning. There is unrepentance. So in this case, what about the application of discipline? Well, Paul lays it out very clearly. Elders who are continuing to sin, verse 20, should be rebuked publicly so that others will take warning. Elders who continue to sin should be rebuked publicly so that others will take warning. There would have been a, a public rebuke, likely because the sin was public. It may well have been, this is my guess anyway, in the context of 1 Timothy that the sin in question was particularly that of false teaching. These men had been warned not to teach certain things, and they were continuing to teach. And so they would be publicly rebuked. And Paul says, so that the others, probably here referring to the other elders, not just the congregation, so that the others would take warning. That, incidentally, is one of the functions of church discipline, isn't it? It's not merely to correct the person involved. It also serves as a warning to others, to warn 
all of us of the seriousness of continued sin, persistent, unrepentant sin. Consider this, that if we never discipline anybody in the church, then others will never be warned of the serious consequences of persistent sin. Now, you can just imagine how all this went down with Timothy. As Paul laid this out to this young, inexperienced pastor, step by step, here's what you need to do, Timothy. These elders, if they sin, here's steps A, B, and C. Oh, Timothy would have no excuses now to be carrying this through. And Paul was aware that this would be very hard for young Timothy to do especially because it would involve elders. And so he warns him against the danger of favoritism in verse 21. It's the first of two dangers uh, that Paul points out, favoritism towards leaders. He recognizes, the apostle does, the temptation that Timothy will have not to discipline an elder because he is an elder. The temptation to treat the eldership like an old boys' club where different rules apply than would apply in the rest of the church. No, says Paul, don't treat an elder any different than you would any other member who is sinning unrepentantly. In fact, the apostle lays it on thick in verse 21. He says, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions, the instructions about eldership and their discipline, without partiality, and to do nothing without favoritism. Heaven's watching, Timothy. Christ Jesus is watching on. The Father and the elect angels are watching what you do. And they will see if you are playing favorites. Oh, and watch out for another danger, Timothy. As you discipline, don't show favoritism, but watch out also that you are not falling into the same sins. Verse 22, keep yourself pure. How easy it is when we're we're going after the wanderers to wander off ourselves. As we seek to pull others away from the brink, how easy it is to go over the brink ourselves, to be pulled into their lifestyle. As we're counseling them maybe week after week in their home, they're not coming out to church, about the particular sins that are keeping them away, and we actually find it rubbing off. Paul says, don't fall into the same stuff that they've fallen into. And then, however, Paul doesn't want to be misunderstood when he says, keep yourself pure, because he then goes on to say, verse 23, what initially seems to be a strange statement at this point. Uh, Timothy, uh, I want to make sure that you don't get the wrong idea here. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Wow, you say, where did that verse come from? Straight from Mars. Uh, James Moffat, when he wrote his translation of the Bible, he came to this verse and he thought it was so out of context with what was being said that he missed it out of his translation. He said, Paul couldn't have wrote that. It can't be original. But I think actually it can be understood in terms of the, the context of the false teachers and particularly in relation to the statement Paul's just said before about keeping yourself pure, Timothy. Because these false teachers seem to have had hang-ups about food, about certain foods. We see this in chapter 4 at the beginning. They were radical aesthetics. 
They believed that the way that you kept yourself pure was by eating certain foods and by not eating other foods. And it was probably the case that they were also saying that the way you maintain purity is by never touching alcohol. That's how you be holy. Now, the ironic thing was that the rest of their lives were all over the place. But hey, you're okay if you're eating the right foods and you're, drinking the, uh, you're not drinking the wrong kind of things. And so Paul says to Timothy, when I'm saying to you, keep yourself pure, I do not mean that you should follow the lines of purity that these radical false teaching aesthetics are saying. All these legalistic rules about food and drink. In fact, he says, Timothy, a little bit of advice to you in your case. I think it would be good if you stopped drinking only water, but maybe had a little bit of wine, a little wine for your stomach. Now, a couple of things must be kept in mind here. Mind here, as Paul talks about alcohol, though I don't want to get bogged down in this. Uh, Number one, in these days, the drinking water was dirty, filthy water. The aqueduct of Ephesus was completely filthy. And so drinking it, you know, you think Edinburgh water's bad. This was really bad. Uh, You would have got pretty ill, never mind if you had a dodgy stomach. And so this was a bit of advice relating to that. Number two, in Paul's day, it was widely believed that a little wine in moderation had good medicinal properties. And so Paul is really recommending the kind of doctor's advice of the day. You can find this in a number of well-known authors of the period. Number three, the wine in Paul's day also was hugely diluted compared to today. Probably only half the strength of the kind of potent stuff that you would find around nowadays. You had to drink quite a lot of wine. You know, people say Jesus drank a lot of, drank wine. But you've got to remember, you had to drink a lot in those days to get drunk. And number four, Paul earlier had clearly forbidden an elder getting drunk on wine. And so while we see here that there is not an absolute prohibition on alcohol necessarily, there is at the, uh, the other extreme a clear teaching that drunkenness is out of bounds, not just for the leader, but for the Christian. Now, we need to bear all of this in mind as we consider what Paul says here about alcohol and, of course, the many other things he says elsewhere about it. Because it's not just as simply as you and your own personal view of alcohol. You need to consider, as Paul says in Corinthians, those who are around you. I was discussing this with somebody this week, and they said, I I could not drink a glass of wine in front of a certain family member because they're an alcoholic. And it would be far, far too tempting for me to do that. There's a lot to be considered in this area. Well, anyway, we suppose that in the light of all this, some elders would be disciplined following these instructions that were given. Some would at least be rebuked publicly. Perhaps some would be removed. Maybe some had already been removed. And so suddenly you have a gap in the the eldership, in the church. Suddenly there aren't enough guys to to shepherd the flock. So, So how do you fill the gaps? How do you choose new leaders? That's what Paul goes on to deal with finally. Choosing church leaders. Now, modern churches vary greatly about the precise mechanism by which leaders are appointed. The Bible says less on this than we would like. But what the Bible does state very clearly 
is, first of all, the qualifications for eldership. We've got them at length in chapter 3. So we know the standards that are set for someone to become an elder. And then we have what Paul adds here. Something about the speed at which elders should be appointed. We read back in chapter 3, it's an addition to what he said there, that a recent convert should not become an elder. And now in a similar vein, Paul says in verse 22, and I do believe this is relating, this isn't just a random idea picked out of the sky, it's relating to what he's been discussing. He says, Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And it seems here that Paul is speaking about elders. He could be speaking about laying on hands to missionaries. But Paul said nothing in this whole letter about missionaries. He's been talking about elders. He's probably speaking about the laying on of hands at the commendation of elders in the church. And what he says is that there is a need for patient evaluation in the case of an elder. Do not be hasty, counsels the apostle. Do not lay hands on too quickly. Don't do it too fast. Take your time. There may be a gap in your leadership. It may feel as if there's a big hole there. But it's better to wait and be sure you have the right man rather than putting a dodgy elder in place whom you will later have to discipline in a really messy way. Paul elaborates on this, I think, in verses 24 and 25. I think he gives us then the reasons for this patient evaluation. He says, here's why it's a good thing. The first reason is that that not all sins are immediately obvious. They're not all immediately obvious. I mean, some of them are. Verse 24, he says, uh, the sins of some men are obvious. I guess Paul is talking here about grievous sins, disqualifying sins. And some folk walk into your church and within five minutes, I mean, you don't mean to be judgmental, but you can tell from some of their history or from maybe something that they say, that this person could never, bar a miracle, become an elder. Their their disqualifying sins are obvious and and perhaps odious. Indeed, Paul says they practically beat them to the, the place of judgment ahead of them. However, look at what Paul goes on to say. Not everyone's sins are so overt. The sins of others trail behind them. I think what he means here is that there are others whom you will eventually realize, eventually, that they are not eldership qualified, but you will not realize that until a couple of years of knowing them. Some folks are gifted at covering up sin. They're good at it. But eventually, Paul says, the sins trail behind them and the sins of character emerge. And so this is one reason, Paul says, why you shouldn't be too hasty in bringing someone into eldership who you don't know from Adam. You might pick a guy whose disqualifying sins haven't come out yet. And then one day, in the elders' meeting, he goes off the deep end, and you realize that some of his doctrine is totally dodgy, or that his ethics are erring. So elders shouldn't be appointed too quickly, so that we can see, I say this kindly, the degree of sin in the man's life. You know, we all sin. We do sin. Every leader in the church is a sinner. But there are disqualifying sins that elders must not be displaying. 
But then there's a flip side to that coin. Paul adds that there's an additional reason for going slow. It's really the reverse of what he said, that not all good deeds are immediately obvious either. Again, some are, verse 25. In the same way, good deeds are obvious. You know, some people, they're so clear that they have the kind of qualifications to be a leader in the church. But notice what he adds. And even those that are not cannot be hidden. So there are some good deeds that people do that aren't so blatantly obvious. And someone new comes into your church, and they don't immediately strike you as someone who has eldership potential. Their good deeds aren't so obvious. They're done behind the scenes more quietly. But good deeds cannot be kept a secret forever. And eventually, those being blessed by this person's ministry talk. And then the elders, the leaders in the church start to hear back news of how this individual has been helping Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. They're doing the quiet ministry of shepherding. And after a few years, the leaders in the church get wind of it and they say, this guy would actually be a great elder. And so patience is needed. That's what Paul's saying. Not only because you might appoint the wrong person, but because in your haste, you might rule out a qualified person. Now, this applies obviously to eldership, and it's something really for the leadership particularly to consider, as well as the congregation. What does this mean to be patient as we consider candidates? What does that mean? Is that five years, two years, 15 years? It's a judgment call, isn't it, that we have to make? But I think even as we extend this out, I think there is a danger in any church ministry of appointing leaders too quickly. Surely that's what Paul's saying here. Beware of filling a leadership post just because there's a vacancy. It's the worst thing you can do. Take time to evaluate people with humility. Well, this is Paul's guidance regarding the choosing of church leaders. And indeed, it wraps up our coverage of our verses this evening. We've asked some leading questions. Firstly, how should we treat hard-working leaders, and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching? Answer with honor, with respect, and in some cases with remuneration. Secondly, we asked, what should we do if a leader is accused? Answer, to conduct fair grievance procedures and in the case of ongoing sin, discipline the individual. I, I trust we'll never have to do that here, or very rarely, but it's in the Scripture so that if we have to, we know what to do. And then the third question, how should we appoint new leaders? Paul doesn't give us all of the answer, but he does say this, do it with patience. However, I want to finish with a final question. Because maybe you're a leader tonight and you feel a lot of this has been kind of directed at you. And I don't want you to feel like that. And indeed, I encourage everyone here to pray for the leaders in this church. Because it's not easy to be a leader. But, but what happens if you are a godly leader? What happens if indeed you have been fulfilling the principles of Scripture for leadership and you've been treated badly? It really struck me as I was studying this that maybe... In your situation, you, you actually have been dishonored as a leader. 
You may be worthy of honor. It doesn't mean you've been treated with honor. Maybe you've been accused when you haven't done anything wrong. It happens in many churches. It happens too often. What do you do in that case? And I think we would need to turn, surely, to the example of Christ. And we would need to remember to follow the example of Christ. See, unlike you and I, Jesus was the perfect leader. He was a perfect leader. He was the, a peerless leader. God waited patiently 30 years before appointing him. And when he did, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The holy God of heaven thought he was absolutely faultless. And yet the tragedy was, Jesus was treated terribly. Though some people followed him for a time, we all know the story, that soon they despised him, they rejected him, and they refused to follow him any longer. Rather than giving him double honor, they gave him double disgrace. And they nailed his bruised and blooded body to a cross, like a common criminal, though he had committed no crime. No sin. Jesus was disciplined publicly. He was rebuked by God the Father himself when he bore the wrath of God on our sins. Because he died there for our sins and in our place. And in that, he sets every leader the greatest example, even when our leadership is reviled. Our job is not to go up to people after the service leaders and say, this is what we're due. We can't expect any better treatment than the Savior God. If we're following him, we're treading a suffering path where leaders often get less than they deserve. Let's pray.